What's going on, everybody? My name is Sean O'Brien, and this is episode 10 of Maker Hub, a podcast focused on entrepreneurship, design thinking, and all things innovation. Today, I'm here with Alex Lee, who has joined me at the Nissan Research Center in the Bay Area this summer as a fellow intern. Alex is a summer associate for the Alliance Venture Capital Group, which is housed inside the Nissan Research Center, and we'll we'll explain that a little further uh, within the podcast. But Alex is a former Boeing engineer, now turned MBA student at Columbia. On this episode, we talk about our first impressions of Silicon Valley, the nuances within startups in 2018, the mentality of industry game changers, and so much more. You're not going to want to miss this one. The HR questionnaire. We're breaking the ice right now. Great. Thanks, Sean. Glad to be here. Who is Alex Lee? Uh, Let's go with, I'm a builder. I like Hmm. building things. You're young, you start with Lego, grow older, then you start building robots, you go to college. I was in Formula SAE, mm. so I was part of a team to help build a car. Went to Boeing, helped build airplanes, so I like building things. Mm-hmm. Uh, quick rundown on my background. I studied aerospace engineering at USC, Southern California. Went to Boeing to work on uh, work in a product development division on the 777X program. Helped get that launched in 2013. Participated in a couple of big sales campaigns in the Asia Pacific region. And at that point decided I want to change my careers. So went to get my MBA at Columbia and now I'm in venture capital. Something interesting about myself. Uh, let's see. Second time I ever went skiing, my buddies took me up to Whistler mm. and I towards middle end of the day. They thought I was doing okay. I wasn't sure. I was just mm. kind of riding with them. And they took me to the top of the mountain and it was whiteout. Mm. Whiteout is where conditions are so harsh. You can't see where the sky is from the ground because everything's just white. Mm. I had to get down the mountain somehow, right? So my buddy told me just to follow him, stay between the left, the blue flag on the left and the orange flag on the right. So I was, I was pretty sure I was following him, but at some point I just kind of lost all sensation. And then when I kind of realized what happened, I looked up and I had fallen 15 to uh, 15 feet from on the edge of the cliff. Mm. Okay. Fortunately, we just had a snow day. It was fresh powder. Mm-hmm. It was definitely very shaken. Probably took me half an hour to get down the mountain after that. But right. there's my fun fact. I skied off the edge of a cliff. Second time skiing. Second time skiing. I kept skiing the day after. Yeah, yeah. I had to shake it off, but that's my fun fact. You know what? How tall are you? You're six foot, six right? Six one. Six one. Okay. Me at six three, which is not much taller. I'm not trying to make that that I gap appreciate seem, it. That gap seem big. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, as a tall person, you either have balance or you don't have balance. There is no in between. I, I have found it's hard to learn balance. Uh-huh. I step on a skateboard, I'm on my face a couple seconds later. <laughs> I'm on a snowboard. And that, that was probably one of the, I've went snowboarding once and just staying up and like my center of gravity is so high. So it's like, and I'm not strong either. So it's like, I'm 100% going down <laughs> if I start moving towards the left, the right front or forward. Uh-huh. So, uh, I was in an, an unbelievable amount of pain the following day of the first time snowboarding. I've never went snowboarding since. <laughs> so we should uh, change that. It could get better. It, it could be, get better. Is skiing easier in your opinion? Much. Okay. Well, I've never actually been snowboarding, so I can't say from experience, mm. but what I've been told skiing is harder to hold on. Skiing is easier to learn, mm. harder to master. Okay. Snowboarding is very hard to learn, but once you get, you know, you pick it up pretty quick. Where's the baseline for master? 
at the like in the Not snowboarding sure. skiing phase? Like, what would you consider yourself? You're an avid skier, right? Huge. Last season, I went 35 times. Okay. Yeah. I uh, went 20 <laughs> sometimes at Stevens as mm. a resort up in Seattle, mm-hmm. went to Whistler, Colorado, and so on. Um, I don't, it's hard for me to describe what I'm doing. Mm. I'm confident skiing down any trail. I'll go down a double plaque, I'll go off trail into the woods. I'll take the lift to the top of the mountain, pack up my skis, hike up another 50 feet, and mm-hmm. ski down somewhere else. So I'm a very confident skier. Right. Um, jumps. Can you do jumps? I'll do small jumps. Okay. Medium <laughs> jumps. I, I won't do a waterfall yet. I haven't had the courage to. So is that the that. bridge? That's the bridge between. I like to think I'm an expert. Okay. All right. <laughs> Let's go with that. I okay. like to think I am. Okay. Yeah. Well, while I am not a uh, skier or snowboarder, the one thing we do have in common is that this is the first time we are both out in the valley for an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really just want to jump right into it and get your initial thoughts of, I mean, you, you've been here. We both started at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. So you've been here what must change yeah yeah so initial thoughts of the valley was it what you expected i'm an avid uh silicon valley watcher mm-hmm. the show um and i thought that was an interesting <laughs> they gave an interesting take on it and to be honest i don't know that they were that far off yeah um so what's your what's your quick take on on the valley in, in general sure so i'm new to silicon valley the tv show I okay. just finished season one a week ago. I'm halfway through season two. And you're mm. right. They, they, they kind of hit things right on. Yeah. Uh, what is it? Hammer on the nail. Yeah. <laughs> From Hong Kong. English is my <laughs> second language. Uh, so my general take on the Bay, on the Bay Area, I will say, I, I will acknowledge that I'm certainly in, in the honeymoon phase mm. where I am excited that every other conversation is about technology, mm-hmm. that every other person I meet is somehow affiliated with tech, right. either at a startup or at a big tech firm, medium, or on the investor side in venture capital. I have a lot of friends here who's, who've been here a while mm-hmm. and they tell me it gets a little bit stuffy. They get kind of annoyed at every other conversation is about technology and I could see that. Mm. But being new to the Bay Area, I'm soaking it in. I'm taking, you know, uh, I'm enjoying every conversation I'm a part of. Right. Um, the technology, the tech talent here is unparalleled, mm. really unparalleled. I come from New York and on paper, I know New York is the second largest tech hub in the U.S. Based on my experience in New York, it has a great tech scene. I was mm. very, very pleased with it. A lot of tech talent from the big companies who open offices there to the startup talent as well. There's a growing investor base. Mm-hmm. And because, because it's growing over the past several years, there's a very strong community feel to it. But after coming here, I now see based on just my experience and people I've engaged with that mm. technology in New York is a distant second. Mm. It is a distant second. Culturally it's different. We can talk about that later. Uh, but the tech talent here is very, very strong in terms of the number of people, but also the depth of talent here. Right, right. Yeah, it's super interesting. Um, like I said, I, I don't know that Silicon Valley is that far off. They, of course, exaggerate things, and it's it's a it's a bit of a comedy. So it's it's uh, mm-hmm. it's they they give their comedic take on it. But you know, driving through Palo Alto, driving through Mountain View, and you see these homes that are very small, and you know. Like I was talking to you a little earlier, just my interpretation of what rent was going to be. I didn't have any idea of what to expect. So Mm -hmm. when I come out here and I see the homes, I see just the general ecosystem in terms of real estate. And I'm like 
it can't be it can't be that expensive right then i i started looking on facebook to try to find a place to move out here and i i find all of the posts of 150 to 200 square foot rooms at 1250 to 1500 a month <laughs> and i'm like what in the actual hell is going on right um and then you know i get out here and i'm starting to look up i'm, a, I'm an avid zillow browser okay. i don't know why but it's one of those like you find one thing that you can't afford and you just want to find the perfect one, even sure. though you're never going to buy it. Right. So I'm looking on Zillow and I'm like two mil, two mil for 15 to 2000 square feet. What is like, I am just absolutely blown away. The, 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 what you can buy and you're from New York. So it's, you know, it's not too far off. Right. Especially right. in the city, but man, is it, is it crazy out here? And then you move over to the, all right, what's, what's salary out here. And you're looking at tech guys right out of school making 140 to 150 grand, depending on whether you join a startup, whether you join a big company, of course, that that changes. But right. the money out here is crazy, too. So I want to know in your short time here, have you found that there's a correlation between the attraction of the money and the talent? I know that the talent you had said was uh, very good, mm -hmm. uh, of course. But do you think at some point we'll get over onto the. Uh, people coming for the money instead of people coming for the actual passion, right? Like people entering software jobs, people getting degrees in software engineering and of that nature uh, just for the money. And then that uh, negatively impacting the actual uh, passion that they have and their ability to make an impact at whatever organization they join. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting question. And I think the original passion or desire to enter the software world, I think that's genuine. Mm. I do believe that, you know, say a middle school or high school student wants to tinker with his computer, his or her computer, uh, starts writing code and develops their own video games. I think that passion is genuine. Uh, I, I think as they go into college and then they start to see how much money they can make going to a certain company, you know, that's probably the first time they're gonna, they're looking at making a substantial amount of money. And then mm. I think their priorities get swayed mm. or their their attention gets drawn in a different direction. Mm. So while, while I think they get into tech because they're passionate and interested, where their career leads them, oftentimes money is a big signal and a big pull. Mm -hmm. uh, I know uh, many of my friends here in the Bay Area are involved at, at uh, large tech companies, and they've said it's it is difficult to leave that very comfortable life. Right, you make a substantial amount of money. Yes, it's very exp expensive, but you make enough to be able to live here and live mm -hmm. comfortably. Um, they have free food. They have a lot of fun activities. Right. flexible schedule. So you, you get to live a very good life. And so I think there is a large population of people who get pulled into that lifestyle, mm -hmm. but. I don't think that has hindered the Silicon Valley culture too much because there are plenty of people in the Bay Area who are willing to leave that kind of lifestyle mm -hmm. to take the pay cut and to take the risk of joining a startup. Right, right. Uh, the, I will also add joining a startup aspect. There is a bit of hype and sexiness around it mm -hmm. because of how it's portrayed in the media and all these big... Valuation investments, uh, you know, very high valuation investments, companies going public or getting acquired in two to three years. Maybe now, nowadays is getting longer and longer. Mm -hmm. um, there is a lot of news hype that I think draws people to the startup world. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And one of the things, of course, I'm still in undergraduate and I'm still kind of deciding what I want to do from the career standpoint. And one of the things that, of course, comes up now is the do I want to join the startup? Mm -hmm. I think that's a question that a lot of college kids have. So what's your what's your take on the appropriate time to join a startup and when when should you really look out in terms of being cautious about joining a startup especially from the software from the tech from from that side not not speaking on behalf of the finance and and that sort of thing so from the strictly engineer stem side of things Mm -hmm. when should you look out good question so I joined Boeing after graduating from USC. Mm-hmm. Massive company celebrated its centennial two years ago. I was very fortunate to have actually joined a very nimble group. And so I, I really did enjoy my time there. I got to work with a lot of autonomy and move very quickly. Mm-hmm. But that certainly wasn't the case across the board. If I could do it all over again, I, and this is the advice that I give to a lot of people coming out of whether it's undergrad or a graduate program, I would go to a startup in between early stage and a large company, so growth stage. Mm-hmm. The reason for this is twofold. One, anyone who tells you brand equity doesn't matter, either they're a fool or they're lying to you, and that's mm-hmm. my opinion. Mm-hmm. And give me an example. Let me give you an example of why it matters. I have a, a good friend who worked at. She worked at Price. First of all, let me back up. She graduated. LSE, London School of Economics, undergrad. Worked at PwC as a consultant. Mm -hmm. Went to Baidu to work as a uh, product manager. Mm. Went to Columbia Business School and now is working at Bank of America Merrill Lynch as an investment banker. Okay. She gave that general profile, she told that general profile to a a partner at a VC firm. And just based off of that, the partner gave her an interview, Mm. a chance to getting a full-time offer. Mm -hmm. And it's because... Brands matter. People respond to brands and signals. You go right. to a university that's reputable and people will, you know, they'll give you a, they'll give, let you through the door and give you a shot at the job. Right. Right. When you work at a big name company, they'll give you a shot mm-hmm. at the interview. Your resume doesn't get you the job, but it'll give you a shot at mm-hmm. the interview. And that's why I think brand equity does matter. Mm-hmm. And the second aspect to the earlier framework is you want to go to a place where you can move quickly, where it'll grow rapidly. And with that growth, you will be promoted and grow as well. Mm -hmm. So given that logic, if you go to a large company, say Google, Amazon, Facebook, all those large, well-known public companies, Mm -hmm. you will get brand equity, but you won't get to move as fast. Mm -hmm. There's red tape everywhere and there has to be because they have you know, shareholders and uh, Wall Street to, to answer to mm-hmm. every quarter. You go to an early stage company, you can move very quickly. If they grow fast, you will certainly grow with them, but there comes a tremendous, tremendous risk of failure. Mm-hmm. And if you do fail, you get no brand equity out of it. Right. So you lost on both fronts. Mm-hmm. So from a pragmatic side, you go to somewhere in the middle, uh, whether it's some companies that come to mind, Convoy in Seattle. Mm, okay. They're in. They're doing software for the supply chain industry. Mm-hmm. Or uh, they're. They used to be called Align Commerce. Now they're called Veeam. Okay. Based out of San Francisco, they're doing. Uh, what is it? Online remittances for international uh, money conversions for small, medium-sized businesses. Mm. Now these are companies you may not have heard of. Most people probably haven't heard of them. 
But people who are well plugged into the community mm-hmm. certainly have heard of them. Right. And if you get in early enough where they have, say, $50 million of funding, so they're pretty well padded, you'll be there for several years, right? Right. And then they accelerate their growth, then mm-hmm. everyone else starts jumping on board. You got there just before that big wave. Right. You could also say, you know, if you go to a large startup, Airbnb, Pinterest, Uber, Lyft, you know, those, those could be good options as well. But they're at the brink of going public. I think that's a little bit too safe. Mm-hmm. Certainly still a great move. But if you have the conviction to believe, and in my case, I believe v- companies like Veeam and Convoy are very strong, you know something that most people don't know. Mm-hmm. Believe in it. Have the conviction to jump in early and to ride that rocket ship through. Mm-hmm. As long as that company is growing and you're growing with it, you will be associated with that success. Right. So that's the advice I give to a lot of people coming out of college right now. Right. So you come from the large corporate environment. Um, coming into that, that was your first job, mm-hmm. correct? So coming into that first job, what was your... What did you want out of your career? Did you know what you wanted, first of all? And number two, if you did know, did you like the startup scene? Did you know about the startup scene? Was that even a, a thing? I mean, we're talking, how long ago was that? Six years? Six five, years ago now, yeah. Five, six years? You're getting old. Thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> but five, six years ago, I don't even know that startups were really remotely as pop- popular as they are today. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's exploded over the past couple of years. So what was your kind of mentality moving into a, a big corporate job? Did you think that you were going to like it? I think I was naive enough. To, I was a little bit naive. I would say coming out of college, mm. uh, I, I grew up in a aerospace family. My dad worked in a satellite business. Okay. Uh, I grew up loving airplanes. Mm. So I wanted to get into that industry and going to Boeing was kind of like a, a dream come true. Right. Coming out of college, my dream was to, you know, change the future of flight, to build a new airplane, change the way that we fly in the future. And while I was fortunate to have worked on a product development assignment, designing new aircraft, it's not really new, new. Mm -hmm. We're just taking the former baseline and applying some new technology to it, adjusting to size to fit the market standard today Mm -hmm. or what the customer needs Mm -hmm. and making sure that you have the production facility to make it happen. Right. I would love to see a blended wing body aircraft flying, you know, commercially. I would love to see urban aerial mobility happen where mm-hmm. you have uh, EV tolls taken off off the top of a skyscraper and going from San Francisco to San Jose, cutting you know one hour trans, uh, commute time down to five, 10 minutes. Right. I think the startup scene even back then was very strong. Certainly mm-hmm. it gets stronger and more prominent every year. Uh, so I have no regret going to Boeing. I learned a lot there. I had a great time. Mm-hmm. I got to work on big and fun projects. But if I can do it all over again, I might have left Boeing a little earlier. Mm-hmm. Maybe two, three years there and then switch over to like uh, Cora. Mm. or you know, one of the flying car companies. Right, right. Continue developing my aerospace expertise, but working in a, in a smaller firm. I think right. that experience would have been valuable for mm-hmm. me. What is your take on, so let's take the flying car companies, for example, right? Okay. They're in a spot where they have to recognize the fact that wide adoption isn't going to be the case within a very short period of time is mm-hmm. they're in it for the long haul and they're developing technology that may be ready within the next couple of years, right. but won't be able to implement for a long time. So 
especially from the VC side, what are you seeing from founders uh, and what are you seeing from the people who are in, in a technology that they know won't be able to be implemented for a long time? Like, like what's the mentality of these guys? Mm -hmm. Um, and how do you keep going on the day to day when you know that it's such a long road ahead that Mm -hmm. you don't know the result of, there's no way of predicting, uh, the result of something as, even as, as big as flying cars, right? Whether the technology is there or not. Good question. So a little bit about the technology. When it comes to vertical takeoff and landing, we've had that for a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Harrier could do it back, I think that was the 1960s or 70s when it first came out. So that type of technology is not new. Um, Battery technology certainly isn't there yet. Mm -hmm. During the Uber Elevate conference, they had very, very, you could say like out there claims in terms of battery promises. The battery, lithium ion batteries today, accounting for the margin of safety that they need, mm-hmm. they don't have the energy density to power urban aerial mobility. Mm-hmm. I think theoretically it could, but then you're pushing the boundaries of safety right. and that's not okay. Right. So battery technology certainly isn't there. There's going to be some complications with autonomous flight. You know, as long as you have passengers on it, not having a pilot is a no-go right now. <laughs> yeah. I think the numbers work out to have a pilot in there in the short term. Mm-hmm. In the long term, you're going to have to figure out autonomous. We figured out autonomous flight. It's really more figuring out the edge cases. Right. Because the pilot is really on board for emergency situations mm-hmm. and you're going to have to figure out regulation. So a lot of complexities around it. But to answer your question about how these flying car companies go day to day, in my opinion, you need to be driven by one division for what you can achieve in the future, but also be okay with a backup plan. Mm-hmm. Something that this vehicle can serve, even if urban aerial mobility didn't take off. Right, right, right. Whether it's selling it to you know small private owners, that could be one revenue stream. Uh, whether it's selling it to military use, mm-hmm. military's kind of applications for it, or even like a government use, whether it's a uh, like safety evacuation type situation. There are all these other channels that you can sell to. Right. And though that would provide a good revenue stream while you kind of have to wait for all the other pieces to fall in place. Right, right, right. I know it was, I can't remember exactly which uh, startup it was, but they're, they're doing something in the flying car space and uh, their short-term revenue stream was, I think it was like dust crop on farms or something where okay. they're spraying stuff over a crop. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's another way to make money. Mm-hmm. It's not the sexy way. It's not what we want. You know, right. we want flying cars like we've seen in the Jetson growing up, <laughs> yeah. but it's a way to sustain revenue. Right. Right. That's my opinion. Yeah. I, I have a lot of respect and a lot of empathy for the guys who are going down that road or girls who are going down that road. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's crazy to me that you can kind of put everything you have going, you know, on in your life. Uh, on hold to pursue a dream that you li- you you have no idea you right. have no idea how it's going to end up right. and I have a, a huge amount of respect for those people because I tell you what if Elon Musk wouldn't have done what he's done I don't know where we'd be in terms of electric cars I don't know where we'd be in in terms of like the boring company like like who thinks of this stuff right <laughs> and and whether or not that comes true or not he's got the financial backing to at least try. And we have to have those people to be able to innovate and move forward. Mm-hmm. Whether or not you agree with what he's doing is, is another story. But to figure out what whether things are possible or not is, is just something that you need people like that 
to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and and on behalf of, of Elon Musk, what is your, being out in California, what is your opinion on Tesla and has it changed from moving from New York City, right? Where at least for me, I've, you know, you, you see a Tesla, every other car, right? Right. right. Pretty much. So what's your opinion on the company, maybe from the VC side, maybe from the personal engineering side, and then has that changed from New York to California? It hasn't changed. It has not changed from New York to California. Mm. I've always liked Tesla as a brand. Their vehicles are very well designed and sorry, let me back up. My perspective towards Tesla has not changed. Their brand's always been great. I've always liked their vehicles. My opinion of the company is numbers-based. Mm. I look at them as a public company. Their records are all public, right? And as a as a company, I don't think that they've operated the way that they should. Mm. Keep in mind, they're public. They right. owe a obligation to their, short, their shareholders. And mm. you can argue that what he's doing is a long-term vision. You need to be in for the long run. I get that. Mm. I work in venture capital and I get that we need to be in for the long run. But Tesla's been public for a long time and it has not returned a positive quarter in ever. I'm not sure if it's ever or just a long time. But at some point, they need to return money to their shareholders. And after the most recent uh, media coverage, debacle, thank you. (laughs) The most recent debacle where Elon Musk was almost removed as CEO of the Mm. company. He's made some interesting moves like laying off, what was it, 9% of his yeah, staff, yeah. making extreme moves to bring the co- company to um, to profitability. And I think he's doing the right thing. They're a public company and they owe it to their shareholders to return money. And so I think he's making the right moves now. Will it hurt their growth in the future? My, you know, it might slow it down a little bit, mm-hmm. but that's the curse you bear of being a public company. Mm-hmm. You wanna go public to raise extra money? I understand that, mm-hmm. but you can't have it both ways. Right, right, right. Yeah, you know, I I think of Tesla a lot. You know, you're, you're in the VC area, so everything is kind of, your perspective is changed a little bit, but you have that kind of mechanical aptitude and the engineering side of things to at least respect what's going on uh, within Tesla. And that's, I'm on the same boat there. Um, but watching Tesla grow has been super interesting for me from the engineering and from the technical side. Just from what they've been releasing at the speed they've been releasing. Now, mm-hmm. whether or not they can capitalize on what they're promising is a whole other story. You look at the Model 3 production, which is just a nightmare. Right. But then, you know, he comes out and he he shows the autonomous truck. He shows the Tesla Roadster, which is doing un- unbelievable numbers, right? And these are like right. side projects for yeah. the guy, right? Like the, the amount of time this guy spends on just improving the company and, and kind of, I guess, capitalizing on his initial vision is super inspiring. Mm-hmm. And and again, we can go back to the, like, whether or not you agree with how he's doing it, whether or not you agree with what he's doing, mm-hmm. it's irrelevant to the fact that he is doing some huge things. Right. Things that people could probably not even dream of. And he's able to wake up and be like, I'm hiring a team to go and like explore this option. Mm-hmm. And you'll never know about it from the public side. You'll never even find out unless it becomes a real thing. And there come 
to do that, it need, he needs to have a lot of political capital. Mm-hmm. You know, to be in a position where you can tell people, "I'm going to do this," and then just, they're just going to buy in, right. regardless of the numbers. You know, he's he's garnered a lot of technical and political capital. He's obviously returned a lot of money to his investors in the past, and he's had tremendous success. So. As a visionary, I believe we are very, very lucky to be in an era to watch him do what he does. Mm-hmm. I, I consider it an honor to be able to see the things that Tesla and SpaceX is doing every day. Right. Uh, as difficult as it was, I'm sure for him to have to lay off nine percent of staff, mm-hmm. and you know there was a um, one of his employees apparently had sabotaged the company internally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very, very difficult. Um, but I think he is making the right moves as a public company mm-hmm. to get this, to get Tesla into profitability right. because it is his responsibility. You can't go public and say, oh, I just want to keep funding it and stay <laughs> right. in the red and develop. Mm-hmm. At some point you got to make money. And, but yeah. also I like to touch a little bit about manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Eventually we see a lot of interesting software technology. We see a lot of interesting designs and stuff. It's all very, very exciting. And no one really ever touches on manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Two reasons. One, I think, one, it's not as sexy, but also two, it's very capital intensive. Right. And I think one thing that people forget as a third, it's very complex. Mm-hmm. There is an art to manufacturing, and I'm certainly not as privy to it because I worked in the product development and design side mm-hmm. at Boeing, but I spent time with manufacturing engineers and it is very, very complex to get it right to the T, right. to get every single part right, mm-hmm. to get in the right place at the right time, to get that production line moving nonstop. Right. It's very, very difficult. Yeah. And I think we often underestimate that. Yeah. When you look at guys like Ford, who've been doing it for the past hundred years, it's almost a no brainer to expect a level of quality and a level of consistency from them because mm-hmm. they know how to do it. Right. Mm-hmm. And then we almost just expect, you know, another automaker, which like, think about the whole, the concept of having another automaker, right? We know Ford, we know GM, we know Chevy, we know Mercedes, we know, like we know all the big brands. To come up as an automaker in 2018 or within the, within the millennium is an unbelievably difficult task, mm-hmm. especially when you want to go to the manufacturing side and do it all yourself. That's a, that's a, that's a crazy achievement if you can pull that off and be able to produce at the, you know, I don't think it'll really within the near future be at the scale of say a Ford, but to be able to produce at a consistent quality at a reasonably good speed and just, you know, be able to push cars off the line, Mm -hmm. uh, is, is just an incredible feat. And we take it for for granted, especially from the consumer side. I don't think we should ever be concerned about it because when you're buying a product, you shouldn't be hoping that they got it right this time. Right. You don't want to be the one that came off the line and has whatever wrong with it. Right. So yeah, I think uh, we take for granted kind of what Tesla's doing and, and the expectations that we have from the consumer side. I don't know that they're too high, but we are kind of conditioned to expect a certain level of quality and it's going to take time before that. That's what they signed up for. Yeah. We'll, see how, we'll see how they fix it. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So I want to jump right into the actual kind of your role um, as a uh, VC out here. Uh, so just a little bit of background. We're both working at the Nissan site in Silicon Valley, the Nissan Research Center, but you are not directly working with Nissan. You are working with the Alliance Venture Capital Team. Mm-hmm. So a quick kind of summary of what that is. The Alliance is Mitsubishi, Renault, Nissan, a global organization. And I just want to get your take on the, I guess, KPIs of Alliance Venture Capital and 
what your goal is, right? So as a venture capitalist, your role is to make money first and foremost, right? Return on your investment. Mm -hmm. But you're you're at an OEM and you're at a large automotive manufacturer. So does that change your actual outcome, right? Are you are you held down to investing in companies and looking at companies and analyzing companies that are related to the automotive industry? Or does it branch out to the, again, we're here to make money and that's the, the sole kind of role. So I wanna understand exactly what your kind of take is from the automotive or working on the automotive side mm-hmm. in comparison to working at, say, a private firm or uh, just that, that case. What's, what's the difference and what's your role in that? Sure thing. So I'm going to take a step back, answer it more broadly. And mm-hmm. I believe it'll answer your question. Mm-hmm. Every venture capital fund has an investment thesis, something that drives their investment, that drives how they invest. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Working for a corporate venture capital firm, your thesis is a bit more defined by your parent companies mm-hmm. because they're the ones investing in you. So if you, if you look at Andreessen Horowitz, they, they invested in software. You look at some of their startups, you might see some hardware application, but the startup itself, all they do is software because mm-hmm. that's what they understand, that's what they get, that's what they're good at. Mm-hmm. But they invest in software through all different sectors, mm-hmm. whether it's in FinTech, whether it's even industrial or certainly consumer. Being at Alliance Ventures, we have five focuses in terms of our investment thesis. Autonomous vehicles is the first one. Second is electric vehicles. Third is connected services. Think of vehicle to vehicle infrastructure Mm -hmm. or uh, vehicle to infrastructure connectivity. The fourth is new mobility business models. As we're trending towards this mobility as a service uh, market, what type of new business models might emerge from that? Mm-hmm. And the fifth one is Enterprise 2.0, digitizing mm-hmm. the business and the factory. Mm-hmm. So that's what drives how we invest. Now, when you look at corporate venture capital firms, they're set up in potentially many different ways. Some of them are what's called on the balance sheet where this entity is a part of the company and they invest off of the parent company's balance sheet. Mm-hmm. In which case there's you know a lot more internal dynamics to deal with. But as in my opinion as more and more money has flown into the venture capital ecosystem, mm-hmm. uh, corporate venture capital firms have to do a lot more to stay competitive. And one way is to operate like a financial institution. Mm-hmm. When I say financial it means a traditional VC firm. Right. And so Alliance as with many other Uh, CVCs out there, they're what's called off the balance sheet, Mm. where our own entity and our investors at LPs are the parent companies. Throughout forming the CVC, there's a lot of discussion over what the investment thesis will be, and then they hire an investment team to lead that charge. Mm -hmm. At Alliance Ventures is Christian Noski. He was a former partner at BMW iVentures, and the other partner is Ryan Armbrust. He was the it was a partner at FF Ventures in New York. Mm-hmm. And so as a corporate venture capital firm, well, Alliance specifically, there is an ROI focus. We make investments because we want to make money. Mm-hmm. We are also looking to lead investments. Uh, we, are, you know, we believe in a certain technology or we believe in a business model and mm-hmm. we believe in the founders. We'll look to take up most of the round. Mm-hmm. And the strategic element is really there to support the founders. Yes, there is always a strategic part for us, 
being a part of a larger OAM. Um, but you know, we, we can offer our, uh, offer Nissan, Renault, or Mitsubishi as potential customers. Mm-hmm. We'll, we can certainly facilitate that introduction. Right. Right. So why, maybe this was just circumstantial, but why did you choose to go to the CVC or why did you go the CVC route in comparison to the, you know, earlier today I was looking at the kind of chart that explains the, I guess, levels of venture capitalists, right? Okay. So, and correct me if I'm wrong on, on any of this, you, you certainly know, know better than I do, but it's a bit of a, a downhill ski slope. So if you have your x-axis, you're down in the negative in your ski slope and you start to come up and, and that's kind of, I guess the, the x-axis is representative of the stage of whatever company you're investing in, right? So you start at your seed round um, all the way through your series ABC, but you kind of have this downward slope where you don't necessarily know whether or not the technology or product is going to be, you know, incredible, but you certainly believe. So you go a bit in the negative as you, as you're spending more than you're making because you don't have a product yet. Right. And you start, you start to go up that ski slope until you're at the top where you're a successful company, where you're, you're close to, or, or bridging, uh, over to the quote unquote successful side. And you chose the, the kind of higher elevation on, on that ski slope instead of going the seed, um, uh, I guess root, you're, you're mm-hmm. more so on the, the companies are farther along, the companies are established, the companies are ready to go in terms of um, whether or not they they just need to find customers or, or get that first initial customer. So did you choose the CVC route, which is the corporate venture, corporate venture capitalist route, or did you kind of fall into this role and, and kind of, you know, want to see your take on, on this side of things sure as well? Thing. So while I was in New York, I worked for a early stage fund called Schematic Ventures. It's a industrial technology focused fund. And it worked very well given the fact I come from an industrial background at Boeing. And there we invested pre-seed, seed. We might participate in some series A rounds, mm-hmm. but the focus was pre-seed and seed. And it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. But a big part of the game was finding companies that no one had ever heard of yet. And at that stage, you really need to have the conviction to believe that this is going to be a big thing or not. My choice in joining Alliance wasn't so much a matter of financial institution or a corporate institution. It was more because one, I wanted to invest in this space, Mm. the mobility space. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very exciting area. There's a lot of activity going on. Still a lot of questions around how AVs are going to shake up the market. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to be in a position where I could learn more about that space. That's the first reason. Okay. Second reason was I come from an aerospace engineering background. I'm not a finance guy by any means. And going to a growth firm, you deal more with financials. Mm. There are some numbers to show for projections, still wishy-washy, but it's certainly a bit more robust because you have some data points to operate off of. And so I wanted to be in a position where I can continue developing my financial skills. Right. And the third thing, and this is obviously the most important, I met with Christian multiple times before. He's a great leader and he was, a, he was the type of partner that I wanted to work for. Because mm-hmm. in VC, it's a very apprenticeship based model. Mm. You need to be working for the right person because right. you're going to be learning from them day in and day out. Sure. Sure. That's interesting. You know, it's, it's almost like you're, it's true. Like you look, you take, you take the Alliance venture, venture capitalist group and you start to look at number one, who's a part of it. And there's three people, six of us, five in the Bay area okay. and one in Paris. Okay. So there's very few of you, right? right. 
So you take that and, you know, when you, especially coming from like a, a Boeing situation where you're getting hired or during your interview per se, you're probably not going to see that person ever again, potentially, <laughs> unless it's the person from your group that, right. that is looking for the right person. But it's crazy that you're, you're interviewing and you're choosing a job solely based off of the person you're talking to and the p- person you're going to be working with. Cause there's so few of you mm-hmm. and it's, you're almost getting into a, like, an adoption situation, right? Like you're the child that's like looking for the future and you're like, these are the people that I want to grow up with because, Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's such a relationship based and such a kind of network based job area where you can't, you can't succeed unless you know the right people in the area. Right. And I guess you are kind of choosing your fate almost from the start. If you don't meet the, or if you don't, if you don't join the right team initially, of, of course you can change. Right. But like, that's such a, a big step forward and such an indicator of what the future looks like. Right. And that's different than most jobs, I'd say. Perhaps. I will, I will certainly, you know, echo your sentiment about how VC is a very relationship driven business mm. and it's just the whole ecosystem. It's about who you like working with mm-hmm. because I am a believer that there are a lot of smart people here and I'm mm-hmm. sure, you know, that's, that's not a novel statement or anything, right. right? There's a lot of smart people here, but are you going to enjoy working with that person? Right. Cause if you're not going to enjoy working with them, it's going to cause a lot of messy dynamics mm-hmm. and you're solving challenging enough problems as is. Right. The problems itself are complex. And if you're going to throw in messy interpersonal dynamics within the team, you're just setting yourself up for failure. So right. it's important to work with people that you get along well with, that you respect one another. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it really comes down to. Do you have enough respect for each other that you're willing to listen? Right. That you're willing to listen to their logic and bow down or bow out when you know they're right. Mm-hmm. So very relationship driven. It does add a bit of complexity to it. Um, but yeah, I'll leave it at that. I think there's a there's a bit of an ego game going on with that too. Like that <laughs> that, that, that can't be looked past, right? Um, <laughs> a bunch of guys running around with a shit ton of money. Like you can't throw out the ego part of it. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, if you've ever watched Shark Tank, I, yeah. I swear half of those deals they is it's out of spite. It's out of spite. <laughs> out of competition. They just want to win. Right. You right. know, early on. Let's see if we're interested. This looks kind of interesting. One shark bows out. Right. Other four are still going forward. Another one bows out. There's three left, right? right? And then at some point, someone makes an offer. Right. And they're like, well, I'm interested, so I'm going to make an offer. Once you got two offers on the table, you know they both just want to win. Right, right. You know, they're they're, they're smart. They're going to think logically. Yeah. But there is an element of, right. not is, there's a very strong element of competition yeah. in this space. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Like, I mean, you can see like the eyes light up on, on the, uh, on the sharks when one goes in and they're just like, you're not you're like, you're not going to get this deal. There's no way I'm putting more money up on the table, no matter what happens, whether or not I, I really want to do this. It's a, I'm going to do it. Right. <laughs> but you're right. It's, it's competitive when it comes mm-hmm. to deal closing, it is competitive and it's, it's an area of the business that I'm still learning about. Yeah. It's an area I'm still learning more about. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, number one, learning about how people act and, and how people react and kind of doubling down on behalf of that, especially in negotiations, especially in deals. Uh, and even that changes when you get into the Valley in comparison to how people act in, in New York. And I'm going to bring this up very briefly because I don't want to harp on it. But when you look at Trump, he is a New, New York guy 
the things that he has said and the things that the media has blown up in terms of what he said is a New York thing, right? Right. You, you ask someone from New York if that's if what he's been saying is outrageous, <laughs> and they're just like, "That's that's like what the norm is, right?" Right. And you just don't hear about it. But you come out in California, you come out in, in different areas of of the U.S. or in any market, and when they're not used to that, that's a massive culture culture shock. Mm-hmm. So you really have to understand from a human, from a relationship, from a how we act and react side of things. You know, you need to be able to consciously understand that in real time and be able to evaluate that, especially from the, the VC side where there's a bunch of people trying to do the same thing and trying to buy into a specific company or whatever the whatever the case may be. Right. Absolutely. Humans are interesting. <laughs> and so actually, when it, for startups, uh, one thing that I'm starting to understand more and more about is how important it is for the founders to create create friction in the round, create mm. a competitive feeling. Now, when you ask a founder if he or she is raising there is like what what makes the person answer yes or what makes them answer no it is merely their choice mm-hmm. there's no other dynamic telling them if they're raising or not right it's just are you as a founder actively raising or not and if you're not looking to raise money be very clear in saying you're not raising but you're open to meet and having these meetings are helpful f- to the investor because we don't want to invest based off of one data point. Mm. We want to invest based off of multiple. If you can be with us now and again in three months and mm. another three months, and we can see how you've grown over those six months, mm-hmm. then when you tell us that you're ready to, or that you're about to kick off a fundraising round, right. we'll be interested to learn more. But also don't drag it out forever. <laughs> yes, the larger your round is, the more time you're going to have to give to right. the VCs to do the due diligence, to understand everything. But set a clear start and end time mm-hmm. so that they have to react to it. And if you know they missed that end date, they, they missed out. Right. And VCs don't like to miss out. Mm-hmm. You, know, you create some urgency to it. I believe it'll really help with your fundraising efforts. Right. Have you seen in the VC realm, have you seen deals been made or have you seen... Have you seen reactions change when a founder is pitching if they can relate to the VC and and kind of create that uh, relationship from the start? Like putting the actual product, putting their service, putting their technology aside. Have you seen a kind of change and the actual human level of interaction actually impact a deal more than what they have to offer? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think this comes from the fact that the venture capital, the partner might be a board member mm. and by being a board member they are involved in your business mm. so as you go through a pitch if as a founder you could make this a collaborative effort get the partner's opinion on certain things mm. a partner asks a question because they're not really clear on something you clarify your position on it mm. but then you also invite the entrepreneur or you invite the partner to give their opinion mm. do they see it differently do they think you should be going down a different route and that creates this collaborative feel that you're going to be able to see in the boardroom. Right. So I think it's important for both the partner and the entrepreneur to get a feel for what it'll be like to work with one another. Mm. Now, as the entrepreneur, it's very important not to just roll over and say, oh, you're right. I'm going to go mm, down that of way. Of course, of course. You know, as investors, we want to, we want to invest in people who are, who have conviction and believe in, uh, and following the path that they believe in. Mm. But that's where it, this become, where it becomes a people's game. Mm. You know, do you know how to work with one another? 
where you may not agree with them, how do you convey that? Right. How does that dialogue go? Mm. So when you make those fundraising pitches a very collaborative atmosphere, mm. I think it bodes well for both parties. Right. As the entrepreneur, you get a better feel for what it's like to work, the, work with a partner. You get a feel for what kind of insights that they bring. Mm. And for the partner at the fund, you get a feel for what the boardroom dynamics would be like. Right. And if you believe that this person is a visionary leader. Mm. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all trying to do the same thing, which is succeed. Right. Right. And I think that there's a lot of misconceptions in terms of like we as the public see the shark tanks. We see those type of environments where it's very competitive. It's very I mean, it's, it's a reality show. Mm-hmm. But when you're in a in an environment with VCs, um, I feel like it's almost you know, you're, you're almost like you, like you said, you're, you're collaborating on, on reaching an end goal. Now, if that doesn't align with the partner's ideas and the um, founder's ideas, then that's okay. They go their separate ways, but it's never a, a harsh environment unless you aren't either aren't prepared or on that side of things. I don't, I don't think there's ever a situation, correct me if I'm wrong, where it's a competitive environment because if it goes well, you're both going to succeed ideally mm-hmm. in the end. And if it doesn't go well, then you each go your own way and you continue about your day. But there's no negative side effects to, you know, sticking your ground and making it seem like you you kind of know everything when you may not. Right. Like mm-hmm. being OK with creating a, a collaborative environment, I think, is important. And like I said, correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. but. I certainly, I certainly agree with that. Um, I will say when, you know, when it comes time to discussing valuations, Mm. I think some people might feel a little bit uncomfortable at that idea, Mm. you know, talking about how much my company is worth. Right. But even in those cases, it's important to just kind of get an understanding as a founder, this is what I believe my company is worth. But, you know, you guys see far more pictures than I do. You guys understand the market norms nowadays. I'd love to get your take on it. Mm -hmm. And I can see some entrepreneurs may be hesitant to get that perspective because they think, well, the VCs want to get as much as possible, Mm -hmm. which you can't say they're wrong as a financial institution. We're looking at, you know, to gain ownership Mm -hmm. because it'll help our returns. But at the same time, we understand that as investors, we're in it for the long game. Mm -hmm. This is going to be five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10 year marriage. And that we want the founders to be incentivized. So Mm -hmm. I know many partners who we invest now, the founders might get diluted more than they would have liked, but at, at a future round, you know, we'll talk about what it might look like to give you more equity, whether it's taking it out of the option pool or right. issuing new shares. Everyone else gets diluted, but the founders get a bit more. Mm. Uh, the uh, the investors really do value more and more so, I believe nowadays than ever, the importance of the entrepreneur mm. and to make sure that their incentives are in line, aligned. Right. Because at the end of the day, if there is no founder, there's no venture capital business. Right. They're at the end of the day, they're the customer. Right. We're providing them capital and we need to make sure that they have what they need to get the job done. Right. Right. Absolutely. What has been the sole thing that you've noticed in pitches that's like, I want to work with this founder? What has been the one thing that that you can say has really impacted outside of the actual kind of business aspects, I guess you could say. Right. Uh, If they if they can't clear the if they can't clear the the basic business model, if they can't talk about a business where I can see how the pieces fit together to right. make it work, I mean, they're not going to have a shot, right. right? So you clear all those, then 
it's very important for the founders to have a vision for what the market for their business will look like in mm. five years. And if they can convey that vision to me, a compelling vision that I can understand and believe in as well, I think that's very, very important. And it's mm. very difficult. People talk about founders being visionaries, like it's, you know, such as like it's the basic thing. First of all, it actually is the baseline thing. You need to be able to do it, but that doesn't make it easy. Mm. It's actually very, very difficult to have a forward thinking mind to imagine what the world will look like in five years. Right. I mean, heck, we have a hard enough time imagining what the world will look like in a year, <laughs> what yeah. our life will look like in a year. And for an individual to think about the market in five years, that's extremely difficult. Yeah. But I think that's the mark of a really great founder to be right. able to have that vision and to convey it in a way that, I can understand and believe in as well. Right, right. I mean, you look at the people who were very, who were all in on blockchain in 2014, 2013, 2012, when it was, I mean, a very, very new thing, mm -hmm. right? It's working out for them now. But look at the time delta between when it actually became real and when it became, I mean, it's still not widely adopted, but... Mm -hmm. It's certainly a buzzword now, mm -hmm. um, you know, to think that last year people or not people, companies were throwing blockchain into a TV ad and watching shares double and triple. Like the fact yeah. that that's that was a thing <laughs> is unreal, is unreal. And the people who are sitting in 2012, 2013 thinking, you know, I really believe in this. This this is going to be the future are now sitting on their yacht, you know, believing and, and understanding that that it was true but right. you have to stick through so much until that that can even happen and to your visionary point you know you have to have an element of like being able to whether or not it becomes fully true you have to have an idea of where it's going to go mm -hmm. at, at some level agreed uh one of uh, one quote i really like from mark cuban mm. I believe it goes along the lines of you only have to be right once mm. And when you're right that one time, that's when you make it big. Right. So I understand why as humans, we're hesitant to jump, jump in on something. Right. We're, we're concerned about getting it wrong and wasting our time with it. Right. It's a very, very human reaction. But if you just sit by it and wait and observe, mm -hmm. you're never really going to know because there's only so much you get from observing and it's very surface level. You don't really know until you dive into it. Right. And so I think it's important you find something that you're passionate about, something that piques your intellectual curiosity. Right. Jump in on that. Give that a shot. Dive all in. Right. And if you get it wrong, it'll probably suck. Right. But I'm sure you got a lot of experience along the way. Mm -hmm. And then try it again with something else. Because yeah. you only have to get it right once. Mm -hmm. My all-time favorite quote to this day is by a guy named Frederick Furt, and he is, he works at Google. I met him in 2017, last year, beginning of last year. And one of his quotes was, people don't fear change, they fear loss. And I'm thinking, people don't fear change, they fear loss. And I'm thinking, holy shit, that is the most true statement that I've ever heard, mm -hmm. right? In any new technology, in any new product, in any new anything that you start to do, 
it's because it provides more value than whatever you were doing before did, right? You're not afraid of the change aspect. You're not afraid of switching over to a phone that doesn't have a keyboard. You're afraid of what you're going to lose out on if you go to the iPhone 3 instead of the, you know, flip phone with the stupid keyboard and the weird screen and right like that all played out. But people aren't afraid of that change. They're afraid of what they're going to lose out on from the previous thing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's super important in in any business, in any business that you're going to start, what value do, do you bring to the table and is it better than whoever your competitors are and whatever the previous thing that you're trying to compete with is? Mm-hmm. And if, if that, if you can answer that question and if you can provide a, a good answer to that, then I think you're, you're on your way. Mm-hmm. And whether or not, again, look at the blockchain example or, or, or the Bitcoin example, does it become widely adopted? I don't know that that's as important as a, did you stick to your guns? Did you create something that mm-hmm. provides more value than the thing that previously existed? Mm-hmm. And that's the only question right. that needs to be asked. And that was that was a crazy realization to me because especially in the corporate environment where you're going through changes and you're going through the kind of corporate things and pe- people are, are not willing to change, not because they don't want to change, it's because they come in and they do their thing and they leave and that's mm-hmm. what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Is it going to change that process? <laughs> That's the only, and that's the only question. Right. And um, as soon as that change happens, it's a, oh, okay, I know what was going to happen. Or it's a, wow, this really does suck. Mm-hmm. And you, you react based on that. That's right. You pivot at that point. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yep. So yeah, it, it's, it's super interesting. That's one of my favorite quotes. And, and to your point, yes, you only have to be right one time. Mm-hmm. That's all it takes. That's right. So whether or not you are right one time. It's a different question, well, but you have to be right. <laughs> I guess a little bit tricky. Um, ideally, yes, that's that's all that needs to happen. Right. Very easy. Very easy. Exactly. <laughs> so, all right. Is there anything uh, that you want to share or is there anything that you have going on in your life that you'd like people to know? Anything that they, that you want people to support you on? Anything you got going on as we wrap up here uh, on this podcast? The stage is yours. Hmm. The question was anything I want to share. Anything, anything. You want people to ask you a question? You want people to reach out? You want more Instagram followers? I don't know. No, not a chance. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, so as you guys now know, I'm new to Alliance Ventures as as of a month ago. And the fund is new too. Fund launched in January of 2018 during Mm. CES. And just to tell everyone a little bit more about the fund, it's a billion dollar fund that invests in the five uh, pillars that I mentioned earlier, AV, EV, connected services, new mobility models, and enterprise 2.0. And so we've made three investments to date. We're actively looking to invest. Uh, there's a lot of capital we want to put to work. And you know we, we want to be engaged investors as well. So if there are any founders out there who are working in this space, we Love to get in touch. Mm-hmm. Great. I'll make sure to include my email with this. Yeah. With this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Thank you very much, Alex. As I close out every other podcast, the one way to live your life is don't be a dick. <laughs> Have a good one. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for having me. <laughs>